So if you would, turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 3. We will continue our series in this book, in Peter's letter. In 1982, theologian and pastor John Stott wrote what is now a a classic book on preaching entitled Between Two Worlds. His insightful question to pastors was how do you bridge the gap between the original readers of a letter like this and your congregation that you have the the joy of preaching to? And, And it's because the circumstances in these two worlds are very different. The geography is different. The demographics are different. Cultural norms are different. Expectations are different. Personal challenges are different. And so his counsel is, in the midst of between two worlds and bridging that gap, is don't ever leave the biblical themes of the gospel. Christ, man, sin, and salvation. And his point is, listen, Christ is still Lord and God today as he was 2,000 years ago. Man is still in rebellion. He still is enslaved to the sin in his life. Salvation is still the only hope for humanity. And, and, and as we've talked about, a common and tragic outworking of humanity's sin is the opposition that people have to those who do become followers of Christ. And so God sending his son into the world to redeem the world from the ravages of their own sin, from the judgment that their sin deserves, the justice that sin deserves, because justice is law, sin is law-breaking and justice must be meted out. And so Christ comes and he takes our sin and exchanges our sin with his righteousness that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ and so Peter writes that that exchange that experience of coming to faith in Christ believing in Christ being redeemed by Christ that that exchange it's going to transform you eternally but it's also going to create for you personally, opposition. And that is what Peter writes about here. And it is, it is, the, very, it is the very experience that, that these first readers are having, but it's also our experience that the opposition that took place to these first century Christians is the same opposition that we experience today for being a follower of Christ. I was in line at a store. This, this um, clerk was helping me, and as we were finished, I turned to her and I said, Merry Christmas. And she looked at me with the most sour face possible, and she goes, Happy Holiday. You know, I, I'm reading about the nativity scenes that are being taken down because um, there's this group, the Freedom From Religion group. You know, that is, that is their opposition to all things Christian. And just the other day on one of the, the networks, um, one of the anchors 
described believing in Noah and his ark as a fairy tale. This on national television. And so you believe in fairy tales. That's the opposition we face. And as we continue to live for and follow Christ, that opposition is only going to get worse. We, we live in a unique and very paradoxical area. On, on one hand, it's, it's the, the center of the world, Washington, D.C., and the government, and you know, it's, it's the place where the Constitution and the direct Declaration of Independence and the Bill of Rights is, is housed, and, and it, it, it tells us the freedoms we have, and yet in this same city where self-proclaimed elites will tell you that what you believe is a fairy tale. The opposition, and it's only going to get worse. Don't don't fool yourself because you live in such a, a wonderful area, you know, just financially and you know, just the area is it doesn't matter where you live. Opposition is coming. And so in First Peter, he is he is writing to the original readers to say, look, there is this opposition that has occurred that you are experiencing this suffering, but, but, let me, let me give you assurance that in the midst of that suffering and opposition, Christ is with you. So look at me in chapter 3, beginning in verse 13. Peter is writing... And he's, his letter is addressing these original readers, but he's also addressing us with assurance. And he writes in verse 13, Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Father, we ask that you would that you would show your glory in this passage this morning. That we might see the majesty of Christ and all that he has done for us who believe. And we pray, Father, that you would help us to sit patiently and humbly and willingly under the authority of your word that we might be transformed more into the image of your son. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So Peter, Peter's letter is addressing 
both the original readers and us, to give us assurance and comfort when we suffer for being a follower of Christ. D. Edmund Hebert in his commentary said this, he says, First Peter was not written to expound momentous doctrinal truths. Rather, it is a practical appeal to courage, purity, and faithfulness to Christ in the midst of suffering for his namesake. It is full of that comfort which only a true Christian, rich in faith and rich in love, can give to the suffering. Peter's primary purpose was not to teach Christian doctrine, but to strengthen Christian faith. And so at the writing, writing of this letter, Christianity had been around 30 years. We, I want to review just a little bit where Peter comes comes from. Many, many had come to faith in Christ. They were in Asia Minor. The church had been established in, in many locales in that area. And the impact, the impact of their Christian faith on the culture was not well received. It wasn't like, oh, great, we've got these Christians among us. They're, they're servants. And they're, no, 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 no. no they, they, they despised these Christians. They hated these Christians. They slandered these Christians. They accused these Christians. They were, they were not well received. And it's because particularly there is much opposition going on in, in Rome because Caesar, the Caesar Nero is, is anti-Christian and he is the one who eventually puts Peter to death. And so Peter writes to these churches to help them understand how they must live in a world that is rapidly, rapidly growing more and more hostile to them. And so he begins, he began this letter in chapter one by laying theological groundwork down for them. The truth and saying, listen, in, in light of all that is happening to you and in light of all that is going to happen to you, let's, let's establish, let's anchor you into one unassailable truth, one truth that will never leave you. The, the truth that John Stott speaks about, and that's in, in chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. And, and these, these words in this section of Peter's letter, I, I would say, are should be some of the, if not the most encouraging words in all of Scripture. Peter, Peter writes this truth not only to the original readers, but he writes it to you today. He says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, you've been transformed. He is now your Lord according to his great mercy, the mercy that redeemed you, the mercy that saved you, the mercy that, that brings you here with a motivation to hear God's word, to sing about God, to sing God's word. His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to this, to an inheritance that is imperishable, a future promise that is imperishable, undefiled, always pure and unfading. It will, it will never lose its shine. It will never lose its glory because its glory is rooted and anchored in Christ. Un, unfading, kept, kept in heaven for you who by God's power, God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In other words, on that last day, that day where we stand before the Lord, that day when 
when we, when we die, if Christ has not returned and we die, and die we will, all that God promised, all, all this that is promised will be awaiting us. And the reason it will be awaiting us is because God has said, I will guard it. I will keep it for you. I'm holding on to it for you. And so, so Peter, Peter writes, he writes in his letter, these are the theological foundations in the midst of your suffering. So when you struggle, when you suffer, look back. Look, look back. And listen, First Peter, Peter's letter about suffering, and that, that's the main theme of Peter's letter. Peter's letter about suffering is not about suffering illness, debilitating diseases, broken relationships, painful experiences, financial trials. That he's, that's not what Peter's writing about. Peter's writing about suffering because people look at you and the faith you have in Christ and they simply despise you for it. That's what Peter's writing about. And, and Peter is warning the, his readers, and, he, and it is a warning to us because God's word is relevant to us at this moment. The, the, the bridge has been gapped. Listen. You, you, are, you are no longer enemies of God. You become enemies of the world. You become enemies of the one who is the ruler of this world, Satan, who has blinded the eyes of this world. And he is the one, as we will read in chapter 5, he is the one who is seeking to destroy, seeking, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So you may not experience at this moment any kind of opposition, but he is seeking to devour you. So Peter writes this letter to these people in this situation, and now he's laid this theological groundwork, but he wants to also remind them in this, in this letter and in this section, he he, he finally gets to the heart of the letter here in verse 13. The, the central theme of the letter, you will suffer as a Christian. And I realize you, you may be sitting here thinking, uh, you know what, I, I, don't, I don't feel that personally. I, 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 don't, I don't experience that personally. I, you know, yeah, it, 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 it tweaks me when I hear things on television and, and, you know, and I read things online and I see, you know, I see the way other people are treated and I hear about persecution in other parts of the world. And, you know, it really, it, this really doesn't, it doesn't bother me that much. It's not really my experience. Honestly, that's a foolish place to be. Peter, Peter, out of a pastoral love, is, is telling you, be prepared. Be prepared. And so he, he lays this groundwork for you 
about how we are going to suffer. He, he's done it. I mean, in, in verse 6 of chapter 1, he said, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. He says it again in, in 2.12. He said that keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evil doers, he does it again in 2.19 and, and 21, where he, he writes, uh, servants, be subject to your masters w- with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust, those who suffer unjustly. He does it again in 4.12, where he tells us, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. And that fiery trial is about suffering for being a follower of Christ. And he closes with be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking you to devour. And so if you are a follower of Christ, Peter says you will suffer. You will suffer. And he seeks in 3, 13 through 17 to encourage and comfort you by assuring you that your suffering is not in vain, not unseen, not permanent, and ultimately something that will not harm you. And so he gives us, he gives three assurances in this passage. And the, the first assurance is the assurance of God's blessing in suffering. That, that may seem contradictory. God, God blesses you in suffering. God, I would have a definition of, of blessing. Um, but he says here in verse 13, now who there is to harm you if you are zealous for what is good. That, that's a rhetorical question um, because he goes on, but even if you should suffer in verse 14 for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. That rhetorical question is who, who will harm you for suffering? If you do good who, who, and you're zealous about it, you're following Christ, you're, who's going to harm you for your suffering? And, and the reality is Lots of people. There, there are going to be a lot of folks who, who want to do that. We just read about that. People will slander you for doing good in, in 2.12. People, people will, you'll be under a fiery trial. You, you, will, you will suffer. So, so what is Peter saying there? What, what kind of harm? Well, he's looking back to 1, 3 through 5, that you have an inheritance that is, that is imperishable, that is undefiled, that is unfading, kept in heaven for you, who being guarded by God through your faith. And so Peter, Peter is saying, listen, yeah, you can physically in this day and age, you can emotionally, you, you can be attacked, you can be slandered, you can be accused. There is harm, but it is not an eternal harm. No one can take away from you the salvation that Christ purchased for you. That is, that is what he is saying. And so there's, and, and that is the assurance of God's blessing. God has blessed. Peter actually starts verse 3 in chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's blessing God because he knows we are experiencing the blessing of his redeeming work. Christ's redeeming work. And so Peter begins this passage in this rhetorical way, but he is trying to say here is 
If you belong to Christ, who can ultimately harm you? Who, who can ultimately harm you? And, and when you get to judgment day, no one will ultimately harm you. He, he's not promising that, that we're going to escape rejection and harm in this world. He is not suggesting that suffering is rare. In fact, I mean, one, one commentator said this, suffering will stalk the believer until this present evil age comes to an end. Suffering will stalk the believer until this present evil age comes to an end. But Peter assures them that nothing can ultimately harm them if they are born again to a living hope. There's, there's a realism in Peter, not, not a fatalism that recognizes fallen human nature. Peter, Peter is not teaching that suffering's rare, not just that it's not perpetual. It's, it's not going to be happening every moment, but he's also teaching that suffering is, is more than enduring ridicule and rejection and wrath and hatred of, of others. He's also teaching that it's, it's, it's a part of the will of God. It's, it's part of God's plan. And so it's why he can say, but even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, for doing what is right, you will be blessed. God, God's in, involved in the middle of your suffering. It really is a strange statement. How many of you would have noted, now that you're, 2020 is here, and probably like Marilyn and I did, many of you looked back over the year and you just recounted the year and this, um, you know, Chris or, or, or Brandon was doing just a little bit ago, um, you know, and you're looking back, how many of you recounted the blessing of suffering? How many of you got really excited to remember how you suffered and how God blessed you in your suffering? How many of you would you define that suffering as a blessing from God? And yet, that's what Peter writes here. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Now, in what sense are they blessed? Hardly Peter hardly could have meant suffering themselves. The sufferings that we experience themselves are, are blessings. Otherwise, they would not be sufferings. <laughs> they would just be something else. But, but Peter's, Peter's looking back to his time as a disciple of Christ, as he's walking with Christ. In Matthew 5, 10 through 12, Peter remembers these words, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven for so they persecuted the prophets before you. And so Peter's two, two points about blessing are one, yours is the kingdom of heaven when you are reviled and ridiculed, when you are persecuted. The blessing is the you are in the kingdom of heaven. And then the other blessing is great is your reward in heaven. And so he says, listen, the, here's this assurance when you are suffering. God blesses you. God, God blesses you. And that blessing is the reminder of one through one, three through five, that you are you are in the kingdom of heaven, you will enjoy the inheritance of the kingdom of heaven, and great is your reward. 
The second assurance is that God has a purpose in their suffering. Peter wants his readers to see that God has a purpose in their suffering. And that purpose, as we finish with 14, have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. So 14 through 16, Peter is giving three imperatives to say, listen, here's the purpose of, of suffering. Here's the purpose why God's will, and, and it is a blessing because in, in this suffering of ours, God is using it to sanctify us, to change us, to transform us more into the image of his son. And, and these three imperatives here are, are, are life-changing experiences for us. The first one is, is this, do not fear others but fear Christ. Have no fear of of them. These three imperatives. Do not fear others, but fear only Christ. Don't be troubled. Don't don't fear the threats of your opponent. And in verse 17 of chapter 1, he said, and if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout your time of exile. He's looking about fearing God. Peter, Peter's alluding to, in this verse, he's alluding to Isaiah chapter 8. If you remember back um, in, um, in December when I, I, during the Advent message, I was actually using the Isaiah 7 passage that the, the kingdom of Judah and the kingdom of Israel, Israel had split into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom Israel, the southern kingdom Judah. Israel made a pact with Syria, an unbelieving pagan nation, because they were going to be attacked by Assyria, the, 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 great, the great Satan of their time, the great country that was, was just like, like locusts. They were swarming all over militarily and destroying all the nations around them. And so they made a pact and saying, listen, we, help, me, help us, we'll fight together against Assyria. And they went to Judah and Judah and Ahaz, who was the, the king at that time, a wicked king. Ahaz says, no, 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 I'm, I'm not joining forces with you. And Ahaz secretly goes and he makes a pact with Assyria, the big, the big gorilla in the room. And, and so the people are fearful. And, and it's in Isaiah, it's Isaiah 8 where where. God speaks and he says, and he's talking to Judah and he's talking to Ahaz and he's saying, listen, Israel and Syria, they're fearful. And so he writes in 8, 12 through 13, and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread, but the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. And that is what Peter is looking back to, Isaiah and that experience. And he's saying, okay, in the midst of your suffering, much different in the sense of obviously Judah's, but in the midst of your suffering, do the same. Don't fear. Have no fear of them. Those who persecute you, have no fear of them. Honor the Lord. Honor Christ. And so the the first thing he tells them is, Fear the Lord, the Holy One of God. Secondly, the, the second imperative is this. He says, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. And, and, and Peter says, listen, the, here is the antidote, the solution to all fear. Fear of anything. 
fear God. And you do that by honoring him as Lord, as Christ, and as the Holy One. And it will bring you near to him. Listen, since no one can ultimately harm God's people and since they they live under God's blessing and truly have nothing to fear, believers are to set apart their their hearts. That's what Peter writes here. But in your hearts, and and in the NASB, New American Standard Version, it says, but set apart Christ in your hearts. Tom Schreiner, in his commentary, says this, the point of this verse is clear. The heart is the seat of volition and an emotion, the core of the person. The call is for more than an intellectual commitment to truth about Jesus, but a deep commitment to him. Christ is to be sanctified as Lord. This does not mean to make Christ more holy, for we can never do that, but to treat him as holy, (coughs) to set him apart and above all human authority. (coughs) Excuse me. Peter's command (coughs) is that Jesus is to be honored and revered and obeyed as Lord. <clears throat> this, is, this is the most critical response we have to our suffering. Who's, who do we fear most? <clears throat> Who's most important to us? Who do we want to please most? Do we want the approval of men? Do we want the approval of the society around us? Or do we want God's approval? Do we want to be like Christ? Do we want to live for Christ? Or do you want to live to be happy in the society and culture around us. Listen, Peter, Peter's made it clear, we, we need to fear God. And Matthew ten twenty eight. do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Peter, Peter stresses that our the duty of making Christ supreme in our life is our highest is our highest calling. Peter tells these believers, and, and, and he tells you this morning, he tells me, listen, your your thoughts and your musings and your decisions and your desires and your response to temptation all display the inner working of Christ in you. How do you respond to those things? Who do you fear most? Do you, do you treat him as holy? When we come in here on Sunday morning, we sing, holy is the Lord. How, how, do, you, how do you treat the Lord? This, this is the inner sanctuary right here. There's, there's no physical temple anymore. This is, this, is, this is not the sanctuary, brothers and sisters. This is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Colossians 1.27. This is, this is where he dwells. This is where you make him holy. You set him apart as holy. 
So that's the second imperative. And the third one that he says in, in assuring us of his purpose is to prepare us to share the gospel hope that is within us. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Peter does not want them to withdraw from a hostile culture and, and just go to some rural community, but to be prepared to, to defend the gospel in a hostile culture because suffering for the gospel is an opportunity for evangelism. And be prepared with the confidence that God is present and will help you. Because he certainly, Peter certainly remembers what Jesus said in, in Luke's gospel, Luke 12, 12. Do not be anxious about what you should defend, how you should defend yourself or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. I, I read this book in 1980. I still have it today. It's the story of a man, a pastor in Uganda in, in the 1970s who lived and served the gospel under the reign of Idi Amin. He was eventually became a graduate of Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia. And here he tells his story in the, in the height of Idi Amin's genocide against Christians in particular in Uganda in 1973. He had just, Kefa had just finished preaching the Easter Sunday message and he gets home. He says, I was too tired to notice the men behind me until they had closed the door. There were five of them. They stood between me and the door pointing their rifles at my face. Their own faces were scarred with the distinctive tribal cuttings of the Kakwa tribe. They were dressed casually in flowered shirts and bell-bottom pants and wore sunglasses, 1973 bell-bottoms. <laughs> Although I had never seen any of them before, I recognized them immediately. They were the secret police of the State Research Bureau, Amin's Nubian assassins. For a long moment, no one said anything. Then the tallest man, obviously the leader, spoke. We're going to kill you, he said. If you have something to say, say it before you die. He spoke quietly, but his face was twisted with hatred. I could only stare at him. For a sickening moment, I felt the full weight of his rage. We had never met before, but his deepest desire was to tear me to pieces. My mouth felt heavy and my limbs began to shake. Everything left my control. They will not need to kill me, I thought to myself. I'm just going to fall over. I'm going to fall over dead and I will never see my family again. I thought of Panina home with, alone with Damali. What would happen to them when I was gone? From far away I heard a voice and I was astonished to realize that it was my own. I do not need to plead my own cause, I heard myself saying. I'm a dead man already. My life is dead and hidden with Christ in God. It is your lives that are in danger. You are dead in your sins. I will pray to God that after you have killed me, he will spare you from eternal destruction. The tall one took a step towards me and then stopped. In an instant, his face was changed. His hatred had turned to curiosity. He lowered his gun and motioned others to do the same. They stared at him in amazement, but they took their guns away from my face. The tall one spoke again. Will you pray for us now? <laughs> um, 
Do not be anxious about what you should, how you should defend yourself or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you should say. And that was that's what Peter's saying. That's the imperative here. Listen, you, you will be prepared because the Holy Spirit dwells in you and he will give you exactly what you need to say. Listen, this is a sensational, this is a sensational account. But listen, what is even more sensational about what we to say is, is that we know what to say. There is, I have been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. I have been given an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for me, who it, by God's power is being guarded through faith. I, that's my moment of knowing what to say. You, 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 don't, you don't need some deep theological knowledge. Um, it's just a simple truth of the gospel, the simple truth of the hope that is within you. And so their, their preparation for evangelism begins by, by looking to Christ. Just by, by honoring Christ in their hearts, by not fearing, by trusting God, the assurance of God's blessing. That, that's the hope they have, that living hope that they will be able to, to share at that moment. Be prepared. There, there's a time and a place for apologetics, but Peter describes a radically different approach to evangelism here. Tell them about the Christ you know. Tell them about what he has done for you. Tell them about what he has promised. Even a non-Christian can discern the hope we have because it's so radically different from the hope that the world offers because the hope that the world offers is no hope at all. It's bankrupt. And Peter goes on to say, okay, so, so now that you're prepared, you've, you've done these imperatives, here's, here's the close of that. Do it with gentleness and respect having a good conscience so that when you are slandered and you are reviled, your good behavior in Christ may be, they, they may be put to shame. It's not simply enough just to give an answer, but how we answer, how they answer, the life behind that, that's so powerful. D.J. Kenyon said this, and I, wonderfully, he said, suffering Christians who refuse to be deterred by opposition display an element of Christ-likeness that speaks more eloquently for Christianity than all the theology books ever written. Gentleness and respect. When believers are challenged with trouble and harm and persecution, when they encounter a hostile world... That is, it, it's tempting to respond harshly. Think about how Peter responded, and I'm sure that's what he's thinking back to, how he responded in the Garden of Gethsemane with Jesus. What did he do? He whacked off an ear. And I bet he felt good when he did it. That's not what Peter is saying here. He, he remembers what Jesus' words were afterwards. Christians that respond in humility, and, and that word respect actually means fear. In other words, we respond fearing God, not fearing people. They're to imitate Christ, not revile them. That's 2, 220, um, 221, that 
Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was sin found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but entrusted himself to the God who judges justly. So that, that's, that's the purpose, that, that we are able to not be fearful, that we are able to understand God's purposes, and that we are prepared. That's the assurance that, that God has a purpose in your suffering. And the last one is the assurance of God's sovereign control in our suffering. Verse 17, for it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. Now this passage is meant as one of comfort and assurance to Peter's readers and to us. And, and it, is, it is just, it's a stunning passage for it's better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. Um, <laughs> when, we, when we suffer for doing good, for living a righteous life for Christ, um, we can be assured that our suffering based on this passage alone is not a random act, but one that is willed by God in his mysterious and sovereign providence. Th this verse might not initially strike you as one of encouragement, but that's exactly what it is. It's the truth of God's assuring sovereignty in your life. He permits your suffering, my suffering, for our good and for his glory. And, and when we've talked about that, that is, Jerry Bridges wrote that many, many years ago, um, that you know, all things God in his sovereignty makes it happen for, for his glory and our good. And, and it's become one of those kind of buzz things where you, you hear, yeah, our, 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 our good, his glory, our good. And, and it, 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 I think it's lost its impact. Listen, everything that happens in our life is for God's glory. We were created for God's glory. We were created for God's glory. And, and because of God's character, the character that never changes, the character that is grounded in love, God is love, that character does all things for our good. So whatever suffering you experience for being a follower of Christ, that is for your good. Because it's grounded in God's character. And it brings him glory, which you were created to do. Think of the book of Job. The book of Job is all about this man who suffers for being a righteous man. Now, he doesn't know why he's suffering. He never learns in his lifetime why he suffered. And he doesn't know that his suffering brought God glory. But it did. It brought God glory to all of the heavens. And to the evil one, he saw the glory of God in a righteous man, and it proved that Job was righteous. Just as in chapter 1, verse 6, it does, the same thing happens to us. We have our Job moments. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. He's talking about suffering. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You, whatever suffering you have, in one respect, it's not about you. It's about Him and His glory. And yet, 
because even though it's not about you, because he is a God of love and goodness and his character is pure and unassailable, that, that he does good to you. Our suffering, brothers and sisters, is never a matter of blind chance, but God's divine will at work in you and through you And yeah, there are times you're going to feel exactly like Job felt. What is happening? Why is this happening? But Peter makes it clear. Listen, this is happening because it is God's will. And it results, as we saw in chapter 1, verse 6 and 7, it is for his glory and it's for your good because that praise that happens at the end of that, that testing, that, that fire, that praise is God's praise upon the believer. Now, actually, let's close. The centerpiece of this passage, the centerpiece of this passage is is in verse 15. He says, make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for, and these are the words, for the hope that is in you. Brothers and sisters, my friends, you are here today because there's hope in you. There's, there's hope in your heart. And it's a hope that is not something that you would have purchased at a store. Hope that you would have gotten from some TV show or podcast or whatever social thing is on there somewhere in the world. This, this is a hope. This is a hope that is in a person. It's in the person of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who, who came to earth to be a man, to live the life that we were living, yet sinless, who came and who suffered, who suffered for our sin as a sinless man and who took upon his shoulders our sin by being crucified on a cross, a horrific cross, and dying, being being mocked and ridiculed as he was dying, and, and then dying for our sin. And experiencing at that moment the full, angry, righteous wrath of God as the judgment of God was placed on Christ for us. And then he rises from the dead. And he says, okay, I'm here for you. I'm here for you. I'm here for you. And I'm here for you. And I'm here for you. And he gives us a hope. He gives us a hope which he calls a living hope. Never to perish. Never to be defiled. Never to fade. Always guarded and kept in heaven for you until that final. Oh, brothers and sisters, Peter's, Peter's, Peter's words, they're, they're assuring. They're, there's the assurance that God blesses us in our suffering. There's the assurance that God has a purpose in our suffering. And there is the assurance that God is sovereign in our suffering and that that sovereign will is always good. Let's pray. Father, thank you that we... Thank you that we can...
come to this place and once again be affected by the truth of your love for us displayed in your Son. And Lord, for those who are suffering this morning, whether it be through through the ridicule of their faith at work or a neighbor or a family member, Lord, may, may they find fresh grace today and hope in you and your promises and the, the truth that you are, you are guarding all these promises in heaven for them. Lord, may, may Grace Church as a church be bold and prepared for the day of defense of the gospel that, that we might be able to share the hope that is within us. And may we be at peace and confident that at that moment, your spirit will work through us and speak through us. Oh, Lord, that is what we ask. Make Grace Church, Lord, a, a church that does defend the gospel, that does proclaim the gospel, that, that is ready for a defense of the gospel, that others may come to have a living hope, that they may be born again. Oh God, there are, there are those who do not have hope. Oh Lord, may we be men and women who, who display the hope and glory of God through the lives that we live. In Christ's name, amen.